0: continue our series to the Old Testament book of 1st Samuel so if you have your Bibles go ahead and turn there with me now and if you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, you can be found on page 231 from our passage this morning we see that God uses the everyday stuff of our lives to bring about his plan that's sort of the big picture of uh, these two chapters 1st Samuel chapters 9 and 10 We see that God uses the everyday stuff of life to bring about his plan. And that's exactly what we see going on in our passage today, particularly with uh, the person of uh, a man named Saul. And if you're joining us for the first time, uh, let me tell, tell you that first Samuel is a book about God's Old Testament people. That is Israel getting their very first king, King Saul. The book is named after the very first character, which is Samuel. He's a prophet or the so-called kingmaker. And then, uh, in terms of the format of the book or the structure, it goes from Samuel and then turns to Saul, which is the very first king of Israel. And then the rest of first Samuel and then all of second Samuel focuses on really the story of David, their second king. So it goes Samuel, Saul, and then David and, uh, and we would think that Israel getting their first king is a, is a great, you know, wonderful thing. You know, that it, it all would be good. But in actuality, it is not all good. If you remember, if you joined, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we remember that in insisting that they get a human king, what they were doing was they were rejecting their divine king. So if you look at 1 Samuel 8, verse 6, we get a little summary here of what's going on. 8, verse 6. Um... Here the people, they they cry out for uh, a a king to judge us like all the other nations there at the end of verse five. And then it says, but this thing displeased Samuel, who is the prophet, the priest, the leader of God's people. When they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So that's what's going on. They have rejected God, their divine king, and instead they're opting for an earthly king to be like all the other nations. See, this is the thing that made Israel distinct, or one of the main things that made Israel distinct. The fact that God was to be king, a holy and righteous God, was to be king over them. And so that meant that they too were to be holy and distinct, because they're just walking after their king, right? Their Lord, their God. Uh, but, you know, the people weren't having it. They wanted to trade in God for an earthly king. And so God warns the people that if they got a king, they said, God says that king would eventually come to rule you selfishly and harshly. And look what the people say there in verse 19 of chapter 8. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations. God, in response, as he oftentimes does, he he hands them over to their own stubborn desires, just like parenting or, you know, even if you're in like a mentorship relationship. If the person you're mentoring insists on doing something against your will, right? there's only so much you can, you can say. And so you just sort of let them do what they desire and pray that they learn of course, we know that they are going to learn, even if it takes many, many years, as the one true king, that is Jesus Christ, arrives on the scene to deliver them from their sins. But, anyways, here we see God giving them over to their stubborn desires. We saw that last time. We also note the fact that even though God's people abandon Him, right, they are rejecting their divine King, He, that is God, will never abandon His people. He is determined. And even though his people stubbornly insist on having a king over them, like all the other nations, God, by his grace, even uses their desires to bring about his good plans. This passage that we focus on today is all about God's providence. God's providence. If you want to know what that means, you can think of his intimate interactions with his people to provide for their needs. His intimate interactions with his people to provide for their needs. But then at the same time, fulfilling his plans. He provides for his people's needs while he fulfills his plans. But as one has said, God's providence isn't only God's way of providing for the needs of his people. God's providence is also that, this is the author here, God's providence is also that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people, and his doing it frequently, over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives, or even the bias of our wills. Let me read that again. God's providence is also that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. So here today in chapters 9 and 10, we definitely see a shift in the book of 1 Samuel. This now begins the story of Saul. And we see God's providence at work in raising up a king. God's providence at work in raising up a king. As I already mentioned, we know, right, that Samuel and Saul are going to meet. Samuel is going to anoint Saul as The people's first king, but our purposes for our purposes today, we have to remember we got to keep in mind that Saul here is just plain old Saul. It's hard for for people, if you know this story, for us to look at Saul and not think about his kingship and everything that happens there with his own son, with David, etc. But we got to remember here, right? This is just plain old Saul helping out his dad on the family farm. Kingship is nowhere on his radar. And look there at verse uh, one of chapter nine. And here we're just introduced to the very first king of Israel. Of course, he doesn't know he's going to be king. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. This is Saul's father. So it's introducing his lineage here. The son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia, the son of uh, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he for his shoulders upward, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So, you know, it, when we put these things together, we are left thinking that Saul is, by all appearances, a pretty decent guy in relation to uh, character, <clears throat> in relation even to the way he looks. Um He's a good-looking, tall dude, helping his dad out once again on the family farm. He doesn't know that he's going to become a king. He's not been groomed to be a king. He's been groomed to take care of animals, to take care of his father's farm. And that is exactly what he's doing in our story. He's trying to take care of his dad's donkeys. And I'll give you a brief overview of verses 3 to 14. <clears throat> Here we're introduced to the tension that leads up to the meeting of Samuel and Saul. If you look there in 3 to 4, feel free and skim those verses. You definitely want to have your Bibles open so you can look at what I'm, uh, checking, and see if what I'm saying is true, which is always a good thing. You see there that Saul's donkeys, his dad's donkeys, are missing. And so his dad says, Hey, he says, Samuel, hey, take one of the servants and go find these donkeys. And after passing through, look at there, verse 5, and this area, and this area, and this area, they're about ready to go home. And, and uh, Saul's basically saying, look, dad's going to get worried about where I am. <clears throat> so l- let's get ready to go home. But look what happens there in verse 6. The servant says, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. All right, so he's just, they're just going to the prophet of God, that is Samuel, And say, maybe Samuel can help us. He is a man of God. He's going to tell, help us uh, use all the powers that he has to help us find the donkeys. So they set off there and eventually they come as they're looking for uh, the prophet of God. In verses 11 to 14, they meet some women at a well and the women point them to where Samuel can be found. Look there, verse 14. So they went up to the city as they were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. And so so that introduces us to 15 to 17. 15 to 17. So keep in mind, right, uh, Samuel is is seeing Saul approach. That's what's going on here. And this is the meeting that we've been waiting for. The meeting that 1 through uh, 14 has set the setting for. Look there at 15 to 17. Now the day before Saul came... The Lord had revealed to Samuel tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince. That means leader over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So if you look at verses, you know, one to 14, it's plainly obvious in light of 15 to 17 that God is orchestrating everything here. So did you notice there in 15 to 17 when the revelation of God takes place? When does it take place? It happens the day before Saul actually came. Keep in mind, right? We're thinking big picture here. Providence. God interacting with his people, sometimes in a surprise, in a surprising way to bring about his plan. And to even work good for his people. So this happened here. This is all according to God's orchestration. The revelation to Samuel took place the day before. And what did God say he would do there in verse 16? What does he say? He doesn't say you're going to accidentally run into somebody. He's going to say, I will send him to you. I will send. So he's active. He's not passive there. God is sending Saul to Samuel. So this is not chance. This is not coincidence, but it is the very hand of God according to the plan of God. With God's sovereign providence in mind, we are helped to understand every step then of Saul's journey. That is one to 14. So consider the lost donkeys. One might be tempted to read if you're, you know, let's say you're anxious to just get to the point. You might read the story and think, why in the world is this even here? Right? We're talking about donkeys. We're not even talking about kingship. We're talking about Donkeys. But consider where the donkeys lead Saul and his servant. It's to the land of Samuel's very ancestors, where Samuel himself could be found. This is no accident. If you, look, if you wanted to, you can turn over to chapter 1, verse 1, and you see there that Samuel is from this land that he's going through. Uh, so in 9.4, it talks about Ephraim. Well, Samuel's ancestors, is, they are from Ephraim. And then you have there in, in uh, verse 5, look there at chapter 9, verse 5. When they came to the land of Zaph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, etc. The servant then says, No, there's a man of God here. Right, Zaph and Ephraim are both mentioned in 1, verse 1. That's where the donkeys take them. Furthermore, the servant, right, all of a sudden, he remembers that a prophet of God is in this place. And then if you look there uh, at 7 to 8 of chapter 9. If you go ahead and skim those things, right, they want to bring a gift to this man of God. That's just uh, normal practice here as, as uh, they go to him for help. And so they're going to bring him a, a gift. And then, and then they happen to meet the women who then point them in the direction where Samuel could be found. So by the end of verse 17, we really are left concluding that this is God orchestrating it all. And even in the way the count was written it seems very clear Saul and his servant seem lost through it all look there at verse four right there looking for the donkeys and twice it says in verse 4 they did not find them they did not find them you get the sense that not only are the donkeys lost but Saul and his servant are as well they are lost and then they come and then they come up with the idea to see Samuel and they consult with these women and what do they say in verse 13 go ahead and look there And the women say, and soon as you enter, as soon as you enter into the city, you will find them. And then at the end of the verse, they say, now go up for you will meet. Also translated find can be translated find. Now go up for you will find him immediately. And this word find is actually repeated a number of times in chapter nine and ten. So not only do they not know their way to the donkeys, but they do not know their way to the prophet who can find their donkeys but of course, we know this isn't about donkeys. Saul and his servant are after the donkeys, but God and his, and his servant Samuel are after the king. And though, Saul and though Saul may be lost, thank God that God is never lost. Instead, God is always working in the midst of our daily details to bring about his plan. Here, we know for Israel to set a king over them. So that, that gives us the picture of, of Saul's lostness. Like he doesn't know where to go. They're a bit confused. But God knows exactly what he's doing. But it's not only in, in Saul's lostness that God is working. It's also in, his, in, in, in Saul's confusion, right? Saul must have been confused. Look there at nine eighteen to 20. 918 to 20. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Uh, seer the the prophets used to be called seers, so that 's what they 're saying. Tell me where is the house of the seer Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. go up before me to the high place for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them for they have been found right so then so all of a sudden the the, the prophet just says okay boom you, you your donkeys are are They're exactly where they should be. Somebody has found them. But then he goes on to say something really that must have struck his curiosity. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? You know what that means there? He says, look, you don't need to worry about donkeys. Everything in Israel is for you. And so Saul in his confusion, looked there in 21, Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite? from the least of the tribes of Israel. And is not my clan the humblest of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So here, right, he's confused. The donkeys have been found. He's been told that he himself and his father's house is the heir of Israel. And then in 22 to 24, they sit down and they have a meal. And then the priest's portion of the food, so the leg Of the meat is given to him, right? He's been given the priest's portion. So the donkeys have been found. He's the heir to all Israel. And then number three, he's given a priest's portion, but he's not a sacred man. He's just a regular guy here. So, but you know, we know that something unique is going on here, even in giving him the choicest piece of food that was reserved only for the priests. But anyways, in relation to uh, application, You see how God works through the mundane of life to accomplish his plans, even working on his people's lostness and confusion to bring about his own plan, God's own plan. So, Christian, I hope that this is encouraging you, because sometimes I'm sure that even in your life, as you don't know where exactly you're going. You feel like you're chasing after donkeys, whatever that might be. You might feel lost and confused and for a whole lot of reasons. But this story should encourage us because we know that in our own lostness and confusion, God is always wisely, skillfully, precisely moving to bring about his plan. I know there's a whole lot of talk about what exactly is the will of God for me. You know, should I go to this college or that college? Should I pursue this job or should I pursue that job? Should I pursue this woman or should I pursue that guy? Well, friends, those things aren't necessarily revealed in Scripture. So we're going to set all those, those things aside. In, in my experience, talking with some Christians, they t- tend to uplift all the things that have not been revealed, but then they tend to downplay all the things that have been revealed. But friends, we are responsible for the things that have been revealed. So what exactly is God's plan? Well, when it comes to his big picture plan, God is moving to make his name known throughout the earth. He is bringing glory to his name through Jesus Christ. He is saving sinners and then establishing the church. All right, those are the things that have been revealed. Those things are, are of his eternal plan in terms of salvation history. It is those things that will indeed come to pass in relation to his plan of redemption. We can, therefore, see everything in our lives in light of those big picture goals. And in my opinion, once again, Christians are out of practice when it comes to striving to see everything in our lives. In light of those big picture goals, we go about our routine without asking how God might use the routine things and the relationships in the routine for his glory. But that, in fact, is how we can redeem the time. That is how we can redeem the grind of our daily lives, whether we are going to school whether we are preparing sermons or selling real estate, whether we are painting houses or involved in the daily stuff of parenting at home. Christians, you realize that God has determined to bring about his very own salvation plan through you and through your very routine that sometimes, frankly, we just don't care about. And in fact, we want out of. He does this by bringing certain people into your routine. The barista, Starbucks, at Starbucks named Stephanie for me. You know, I see her somewhat regularly. The server, Maggie at Panera, that we see. And a number of us has talked to her about her divorce and her needy children and all the difficult things that she's going through, the court cases. And we tell her we pray for her. We pray for her on the spot. You can think about other examples here that you guys know of. David Ree and the guy who works at the gas station. Right? That's God bringing relationships into people's lives. You can think about David and Jennifer Ng and Jen's mom, who recently became a Christian in the last couple of years, whom they were faithfully evangelizing to. You can think about Adrian and AJ working as coworkers, where Adrian came to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? This is all evidence that God is working in the daily, mundane stuff of life to bring about his plans. But sometimes we forget that he actually does that, despite the fact that we know he does despite the fact that we see evidence of him building his own church in Jesus Christ, and as he gets the glory, we frankly forget. I was grabbing coffee with a a Christian friend this week, and he was telling me that he used to be in a metal band. And uh, one of the other band members, uh, he says, was living a pretty outright sinful life. It seemed like she wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. But I think the story goes, if I remember this correctly, uh, somehow they got connected over social media. And if I remember correctly, you know, maybe there was some sort of social media picture of this girl at the church or something like that. And he asked her if she became a Christian. And she said, yes, she became a Christian. So here's this girl who wanted, seemed to have nothing, wanted nothing to do with Jesus previously. But then now she's a Christian. And she says that some guy, you know, told me about Jesus. and I repented of my sin. And you know what she says next? She said, well, when we were in the band together, you were a Christian, right? And he said, yeah. And she replied, you know, I thought so. I was always waiting for you to tell me about Jesus. When she seemed to not want anything to do with Jesus. Right. That's where everything that's when everyone goes, oh, that's crazy. You know, so that, that, that's, that's evidence of not, potentially, of not seeing the routine and the relationships in the routine being used by God to bring about his plan of salvation. That's an example of having, It could be an example of, of having no Godward regard for the routine God has given you. And friends, I know that it happens to some of you as well. Not just my example here, having coffee with this friend, because I have stories of people who have walked into this church with their friend, and this person here comes to find out that their friend is a Christian. They're saying the same thing. You knew about this, and you never told me? That could be an example of having no Godward regard to the routine that God has given you. Some of you guys might be thinking, well, my my, my routine doesn't involve other people. Or maybe it involves little people who can't talk to you, right? Children, babies. Let me encourage you guys to not be discouraged. But consider in those situations your faithfulness in the routine. How that reflects some degree of faithful the faithfulness of God to the very people that you're serving. Or to the other people, the older people that are watching you do those things. That reflects God's faithfulness to those that you're serving. Considering, consider how changing your kids' diapers so patiently And lovingly, when you do it patiently and lovingly, again and again and again, says something about the compassionate, tender love of God to the helpless. You can still point people to the character of Christ by living like him. Getting ready, you're, you're setting the stage, you're getting ready to point them to Christ as you will one day speak to them about Jesus Christ. This is the stuff of the routine that God uses to bring glory to Christ and to build his church. God forbid... We count useless the things God uses. Love the routine, and especially the relationships in the routine. I mean, just think about Saul's example. Okay, now here's how it's connected. Think about Saul's example, right? He doesn't know what's coming. He's just talking about donkeys. And soon enough, he will realize that God is working in the daily stuff of life to make him a king. The next theme in relation to God's providence, I mean, first we saw God's providence in raising up a king over his people. God's providence continues as God assures Saul that he, in fact, will be the next king. God's providence continues in this as God assures Saul that he will be the next king. So think about it this way. You see God's providence leading up to the event of finding or having Saul and Samuel meet. We also see God's providence after the fact, after he is anointed king. Chapter 9 concludes and as chapter 10 begins, we have the private anointing of Saul to be the king of Israel. A private anointing. The public one will come uh, later on in chapter 10, but then it'll come again, like the formal one will come again in chapter 11. But as Samuel and Saul are walking along, Samuel determines that it is time to anoint him king. He and Saul tell the servant to be excused. you know, Go on ahead, this going to, we're going to do something private here. And then he anoints Saul's head with oil, which is pretty typical for setting something apart for God's holy use, this anointing of a fragrant oil. <clears throat> Perhaps an equivalent could be seen in like a pinning ceremony for, let's say, you nurses or something like that. Uh, looking at 10.1, look there, the king's task is to reign and save them from their enemies. Look there. Th- then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the the hand of their surrounding enemies. You you can also look over there at at, uh, chapter nine. Look over chapter nine again. You see there in verse 16, once again, this is the Lord revealing to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince. And you get the language of prince. He's the inheritor of, of everything, even though he doesn't technically have A father that's a king. Nevertheless, he is going to be the inheritor of it all, the ruler of it all, just like a prince would. And what is he going to do? He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. You guys hear that language? It's really similar, actually, to the language of the Exodus. Where in Exodus, the early chapters, you see the suffering of the people. And then you see the people crying out to the Lord for this difficulty. And, and there they're being oppressed by the Egyptians. Here they're being oppressed by the Philistines and their surrounding enemies. But the same thing, right? You've got a, a God who is intimately involved in the suffering of his people. The cry has come up to them and God has said, Okay, I'm going to make this man over you. Uh, verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. <clears throat> this doesn't mean that the, that this man is going to restrain their sin. It more so means that he is going to be governing his people. And in that sense, he is restraining. He's bringing order to the people. So you, get, you, get, you see there the task, right? He's going to reign over the people, and then he's going to deliver them from their enemies. <clears throat> and Saul, once again, must have been... Uh, confused, right? Because he was he was a farmer boy and now he's going to become king. So to assure Saul, right? To give him the confidence for this monumental task that God actually knows what he's doing. Samuel or God through Samuel gives Saul three confirming signs, three confirming signs. The first one is in verse two. You can just skim there. I'm not going to read them uh, at this point in time. He says, look, you're going to meet two men who are saying that the donkeys have been found, right? So this is a confirmation that Saul's word is true. Sorry, that Samuel's word is true. Second, there in verses 3 and 4, Samuel says that you are going to uh, then meet three men, each carrying a gift. And I think all the gifts are supposed to be for uh, Saul, even though uh, only the bread is mentioned there in verses 3 to 4. And this was typical for, for uh, you know, if you're going to meet your king, you're going to bring a gift. The third thing in verses 5 to 7, Samuel says you, you will meet a group of prophets and look what would happen there, verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So we have these three signs that are, that are supposed to go towards inspiring Saul with confidence that God was with him, right? That this was not a fluke. And then in 9 to 13, you have this fulfillment. Now, in these verses, if you skim through those verses again, in these verses, you see here that the focus is on the, the main sign it's not on the lesser signs of the bread and whatnot and the donkeys. It's, it's more of the Spirit rushing upon somebody. The Spirit of God's going to rush upon someone. Actually, let's go ahead and read that. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 10. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So this language of prophesying among them, what's going on here is he's being validated as a legitimate leader of God's people, particularly in speaking the word of God, right? So we know that the kings are supposed to be governed by God. They're supposed to be servants of the people governed by God. Deuteronomy 17 actually has a list of things that the king is supposed to do. One of them would be to be writing out the whole entire law, his very own copy, in order to to signify that this is a man driven by the word of God. So here the spirit of God rushes upon somebody, It's an interesting language. That language is used, uh, at least outside of this uh, occurrence, that language is used only in judges, right? So this is the period of the judges where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's not good, not good. And you see the spirit of God rushing upon someone, meaning, I think, that the spirit empowers somebody for a specific task. Saul's task in this case is to rule over his people, to save his people, in many of the same ways that, let's say, the judges in the book of Judges were doing. And we know that once this task is completed, as God's plan for him is done, uh, after his reign ends pretty poorly, the spirit departs from Saul in... uh, Sixteen fourteen. Now, you don't have to get confused here if you're a Christian. You're wondering, is God going to take your, His spirit, His indwelling spirit from you? This here is different. This is empowerment for a specific task. When it comes to the indwelling spirit of God for the Christian, God does not take His spirit from His people. They're given uh, His spirit. So anyways, these signs are supposed to inspire confidence that God's sovereign providence is actually in the mix. His providence is leading up to the anointing, and, you know, naturally, if you got the Spirit of God rushing upon Saul so that Saul would speak God's very own words, you know, you figure that there would be great confidence as they experience such evidence that his sovereignty, his Spirit is working here in the mix. There as he speaks with other prophets. And look there, we'll continue on in verse 11. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets and a man of the place answered. And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb is Saul also among the prophets. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So here, some people are amazed and they come up with this prophet. uh, This, this uh, proverb is Saul among the prophets. It's important to note here in terms of what's supposed to give confidence to Saul uh, it's supposed to be, number one, the events. Right? That's supposed to, he's supposed to have confidence there. He's supposed to experience, find the two men. He's supposed to find the three men. He's supposed to be rushed upon by the Spirit of God. Right? So those are the events that he sees in his life. He's also supposed to be inspired uh, towards confidence by, number two, the Spirit. right? The Spirit of God rushes upon him. right? That's unique. And then the third thing he's supposed to be inspired by or have confidence in is because the Word of God is given to him. Now, we today might be tempted to find the will of God in events alone. In events alone. So, right, so we got, as we think about how to apply this today, we need to ask, what does the Spirit of Christ think about the events? Right, because if all we're operating on is events and feelings, apart from, well, what does the Spirit say about this, and what does the Word of God say about this, then we're in big-time trouble. Because that's exactly what Saul is doing. He's, he, he, he eventually comes to operate only on events and feeling. I knew a man previous, at a previous church who thought that a sinful relationship with a woman, so think about event here, is this the will of God? Um, he was in the sinful relationship with a woman. Both were unmarried. They were sleeping together, so they were being sexually intimate outside of God's boundaries for marriage, and he was not repentant. He had rejected God's design for marriage and for sex. But because of the way the relationship made him feel, and because of all the events that happened to bring them together as they were living in a different country in the Middle East, even though they were from other countries, he really thought, like, surely this must be the hand of God. Right? So that's events and feelings. But what he did not do was think about, well, what does God's spirit actually have to say about the issue? God's word. Because we know it's the spirit of Christ, Christ's teaching. And then what does the word of God have to say about these things, right? So the spirit of God is not in something like that. It, you know, and, and I've met people who say, yeah, I think I should get divorced because I've fallen out of love with this particular person. And instead, I'm in love with this particular person. Right. So here we're not thinking about godly reasons for uh, for divorce or at least uh, the the categories for divorce that are given according to the word of God. This is outside. This is not only outside, but actually it's going against. That doesn't work. The spirit of God is not in those things. If it is going against the word of God, no matter how one feels, no matter how one judges the various events of life. Um, So we need to think, okay, what does the spirit of God say about those things? Namely, what does the word of God say about those things? What does the word of God say about these things? Um, and you see here that that really the word of God is supposed to give them great assurance so look over at 927 right uh, I always get these names confused in relation to Samuel and Saul but anyways okay so so Saul doesn't know that he's going to become king yet and verse 27 look, look there it says as they were going down to the outskirts of the city Samuel said to Saul tell the servant to pass on before us and when he had passed on stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God It's not just events. It's the word of God, right? He's going to tell them, he's going to tell him the disclosed word of God, the will of God. Well, friends, for us, that might not necessarily come from a prophet. It comes from the word of God. As we know that this here, it contains everything that we need to know for life and salvation in terms of godliness. So what we if we have a question, right, in terms of events going on, we need to go back here. Uh, to see what God actually has to say about these things. So friends, these signs were to confirm the word of God, right? You think about the, the, the men talking about the donkeys have been found. We're talking about, you know, all these men bringing gifts. And then you're talking about the spirit of God. Those signs were given to affirm the word that Samuel had spoken, the word that God had given Samuel. So we therefore can have great confidence in going to the word of God. We can have great confidence as we look to, you know, in terms of today, what's right and what is wrong. Because we see God is definitely in the mix and we can go to the word of God to see what his spirit has to say about these things. If you're visiting with us, you're exploring Christianity. Let's say you're thinking about, you know, who is this God and how does he interact with this world? Well, friends, you know, again, we're going to sovereign providence here. We can see definitely that God is in the mix in this world. And friends, if you want to know what he thinks about the stuff of the world. We can, have confidence, we can have confidence as we go to the word of God. Not only that, though, more importantly, uh, as we turn to what God has done in salvation history, as he has sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the sins of the world, for everyone who would ever repent and believe, right? We can see, well, what does God have to say about that? So you're exploring who this Jesus is. Friends, go to the word of God to see what he has to say. And the word of God will confirm This idea, this notion that you might have right now of this Jesus of a far-off place who has died and, as Christians might claim, as we know, has risen from the dead. If you want to know, if you want to make sense of what this is, this Jesus, if you want to make sense of your world, friend, you can go to the Word of God. In relation to this confidence, though, the unfortunate thing is that Saul is not confident. These signs have been fulfilled. The Word of God has spoken. The spirit of God has rushed upon him and he's prophesied with other prophets, but yet he is not confident despite all of these events. And I think the, the last section of chapter 10 points us to the fact that Saul is not confident. So God tells Samuel to gather together all of the people to draw lots to see who would be king. It might sound a little strange, but it's, it, I, the way I read it is that God is affirming to the people that really God is in this. Right, because that's how they used to determine things according to God's sovereign hand by drawing lots. We know according to the Proverbs that he's even sovereign over the roll of a dice or something like that, specifically in the drawing of lots. So God has already determined. Now he's going to make it clear who it is as they draw lots and select a king. Uh, And then you look there at verses 20 and 21. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near By its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot, right? Okay, so that's the Lot taking. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again, of the Lord. You see again, it's of the Lord. We We understand here who the sovereign one is. And they asked the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, once again, this is the Lord's idea here. This is the Lord's decision. Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> it's a really strange account. This tall man, if Adrian was here, we'd talk about Adrian because he's, uh, you know, he stands a head taller than everybody else. <clears throat> you know, so you, you imagine this man who looks like a leader. He seems by all appearances to be a leader, but yet he's hiding in the baggage. Even though all of those signs have taken place, the man of God has already spoken to him the word. He himself has experienced the spirit rush upon him. He prophesies, speaking the word of God, but yet he's hiding. While God is bringing him to the fore, Samuel, uh, Saul is running to the back. I think out of fear. It's really hard not to see his hiding as a lack of confidence in God's sovereign providence. It's also hard not to see his hiding as a fear of man. Of course, those two things go together, don't they? Uh, lack of God's sovereignty and his providence and the fear of man. Right. So if you don't think that God is going to help you, if you think he has abandoned you, then you need to rely on yourself right? because that's all you got. And if you ever rely on yourself, it's only a matter of time before you see just how trustworthy you are or just how little strength you might have. Right? So what we see here, I think, is Saul looking at the events. Everybody wants to make me king and feelings. I don't want to do it. Events and feelings. I don't want to do it. And so he runs. And obviously, he's going to get in trouble. He reminds us a lot of another leader who lacked confidence in God and his power. We're thinking about Moses here, who was so concerned about his own ability or his lack of ability that he forgets the power of God, and so he fears man, despite God saying, look at every single thing I am going to do. It seems that Saul does as well. Now we know that while Saul's kingship starts decently, he actually does deliver Israel from their enemies. We know that it's going to turn nasty really quick. Because of his fear of man and his jealousy of David, one of his most loyal people he tries to murder him so right his kingship is going to end very badly but if you're like me we we too are like saul aren't we we know that god is sovereign and indeed he will accomplish his plans right that's how every christian prays we pray god do this right god save this person because we know he's sovereign we know that he intends to use the church to accomplish his his purposes and we know we have God's sovereign providence on our side, but yet we hide, don't we? We don't step up to the plate and own our responsibility to point people to Christ by living like Christ and by speaking about Christ. For whatever reason, right, we drop the ball, whether we are unprepared, whether we don't love like God wants us to love, whether we fear men more than we fear God, and so we run away. And I personally think that we should come up with a, you know, a first Baptist proverb And every time we're doing that, we should keep each other accountable. Like, is Saul among the baggage? Or we say, you know, are you among the baggage? So it is true that we will forget that our sovereign God will take care of our needs and fulfill his purposes. But in those moments, we can pray that we would nevertheless be found laboring for his kingdom. Thank God that it is God who finds us time and time again according to his mercy and grace. That's what God is doing here. Isn't he saying, look, let me tell you, Israel, he is over there. Look over there. You're going to find him. I think there it just goes to show that they're dependent upon their sovereign God to bring about his plans and purposes. This is a major thing that we see in the passage. God's sovereign providence to bring about his plan and purposes among his people, even though they sin against him. Here we see Saul sinning against God. Right? He's not confident in him, instead he relies upon himself. it seems. But it isn't only Saul that sins against God. It is also Israel. They, don't forget, deserve to be judged by God as they had rejected him. And God reminds them. Look there in 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distress, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. And you see there that God is reminding them that they had rejected him. And God is clear I brought you up. I delivered you, and now you have rejected me. And we can't help but think, in light of the story, like, how, you, how can you Israelites do that? God is the one who showed up and heard your cry and acted in history to save you from the, the hand of the Egyptians. God was the one to bring the mighty plagues against the so-called mighty hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, they who disregarded God. It is God who by his mighty hand crushed Pharaoh and his chariots with his miracles. And plagues. It is God who had sustained the Israelites through the desert, and who had brought them into the land of Canaan. And you sure you want a king who hides among the baggage? Yet though Israel sins against God, praise God that God does not abandon them. But instead, once again, He's bringing about His plans among them, even though they rejected Him. You see, just as Christ had, just as God had orchestri- orchestrated the rising of King Saul, despite His people's sins. So he orchestrated the arrival and appointed Christ as king, all according to his mercy. And not only does it despite our sins, he does it because of our sins. Just as he orchestrates the rising up of Saul in light of all of their sins, so he orchestrates the rising up of Christ at the right time, Ephesians 1 says. At the appointed time, he sent Christ to redeem sinners. According to God's timing and fulfillment of his promises, God sent his son in the world to save sinners. That's by his plan. Thinking about the spirit that we see here. Well, Christ himself was anointed by the spirit. He was led by the spirit for his whole entire life. Thinking about the people's sins and then thinking about our sins. The people indeed had rejected God as king over them. And didn't we reject Christ as king over us? Friends, in the resurrection of Jesus, God the Father declares his eternal son to be king over all, as all things are subjected underneath his feet. And in God's kindness, we know that we have this word here, this word that explains the gospel of Jesus Christ to us, and so that we might know God, so that we might know too that he is in the mix of everything, working to bring about his plans and his purposes to see God glorified through Jesus Christ to save sinners and to build the church. Ken, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, we believe that God is sovereign. Of course, He is the King. He is God, after all, the very Creator of all things, who knows the end from the beginning and declares things to be so. Friends, if you see here, you might reject God and you might be even underneath the weight of that sin. But you see, friends, God's mercy here. Even though Israel rejects their true King over them, what does God do? He sends them a King Nevertheless, to deliver them from the hand of their enemies. Isn't that God's kindness to, the, to to these people who had rejected him? Well, friends, so God has been kind to us. Even though we had rejected the one true king, he sends Christ to live a perfect life that we could, that we should have, but that we did not. He sends Christ to die on the cross, to die the death that we should have, knowing that a rejection of the one true king would earn for us eternal condemnation and hell. But yet in God's love, in his mercy, in his plan to show himself to be the gracious, merciful, kind and compassionate king, he sends his very own son to take the punishment that we deserved. So that everyone who repents of their sins and believes would be saved to live underneath this wonderful reign. You know, Saul, we, we, look, we, we noted here that Saul's going to fail. We know, too, that David is going to fa- fail. Friends, if you've ever read First Kings, and you see that they're bad king after bad king after bad king, and you're wondering, like, when does this end? Friend, Even that is supposed to point us to the fact that there is only one true king who will rule and reign forever and deliver his people from their sin. And that king, friends, is Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe. If you want to know more about this gospel, this good news of Jesus, I'll be standing right there at the back, and we'll be very happy to talk to you guys more about that. Let's go ahead and pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you wield your sovereignty to fulfill your plans and purposes in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that at the end of the day, it's not up to us seven billion people who are so imperfect and who have such limited strength. But instead, Lord, we thank you that we can trust in you. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you as as our thanks is generated because of the fact that you fulfill all of your promises. Not one of them falls to the ground. So, Lord, we give you great praise for being our sovereign God. And we thank you too, Lord, that you are not only sovereign, but you are also loving as your promise speaks of your love. As you promised, even from, the, even from Genesis chapter 3, that you would send one to destroy the serpent and to destroy sin and death and Satan. And you have done so in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that even though we go through difficult times or even the seemingly mundane times of while Saul is looking for donkeys, we might feel like we are stuck in our, in our jobs or just going about these boring things. Lord, that even in the midst of them, you are using them to bring glory to yourself in Jesus Christ, to save sinners and to establish your church. Lord, we know that there will, be, there will come a day when you will gather all of your people from the ends of the earth to give Christ all the glory that he deserves. Lord, we pray that in the, in the midst of whatever routine we may want to get out of, Lord, that we would see that you yourself have given it to us and the relationships that can be found in them. Father, we pray that we would have that day on our eyes where Christ will return and you would receive all the power and the glory and the honor. In your name we pray, amen. amen.